Welcome to the Squirrel Cage, featuring spirited discussion on 12-step recovery topics with occasional guests, hosted by some guys who say they have double-digit sobriety and sponsors. Since we hate long intros, you can hear more about who we are and how to communicate with us after the podcast. My name is Cal, and among other things, I happen to be an alcoholic. But I just want to remind everybody before we start rocking and rolling here that uh, this podcast is not just for alcoholics, it's for drug addicts and uh, anybody who knows them and loves them or hates them, even Al-Anons are welcome, CODA, you name it. So basically the deal is, and the, uh, the first lie that I told was that my name is Cal. So the idea there being that, well, you figure it out. So I'm alone today. I've never done this before. I usually have a co-host and a guest. We have neither today, and I'll have more on that later. But I'm just going to go on a single rap about drugs, and um, I promise I won't use that voice again. But in Alcoholics Anonymous, and here's the official beginning of the podcast in some places, there's still this sort of belief that you shouldn't talk about drugs. And I don't know what that means uh, exactly anymore. I know that when I first got sober, which was, um, oh boy, was that back in the 90s? Yeah, it was. When I first got sober, there were was more of this. There was a group that had you know, they were way into the singleness of purpose thing, but somebody went down there and identified only as a drug addict, and they said they wanted to take what, in that area of the country, they call a cake uh, to celebrate their sober birthday. And, uh, you know, here where I am, it's it's a medallion, but whatever it is, went down there to take it and said, yeah, I'd like to take one today. And the, the guy he talked to said, not here, you can't. And uh, it was because he only identified as a drug addict. Um, I don't know why he only did that. So that's an extreme example, but it happened to me. I gave a pitch at my old home group, and it wasn't much different than any pitch that I've given before, and I just didn't feel obligated to qualify anything about it. I identified solely as an alcoholic. It was an AA meeting, and I talked about my experience with drugs and that uh, I finally realized that I had to stop drinking because if I got drunk, doing uh, a lot of cocaine and crystal meth seemed like a really good idea and then even though two and a half years before I got sober I knew I was basically fucked you know that I that there was no way I could keep living the way I was so I talked about that and it was like the first thing I did was drink the last thing I did was drink that over time the more that I drank that uh, I had personality changes and uh, had my first blackout and things like this. So I definitely felt like I qualified. And then after my pitch, at least the next day, someone that I have a lot of respect for, and still do, said, um, yeah, I've been, I wanted to talk to you about that. It seemed like you talked an awful lot about drugs. It really surprised me. I didn't understand where it came from. I thought that that was still an issue back in the 90s, but not in the, the 20, uh, wherever we are, the 2020s. I was really quite shocked about the whole thing. 
And uh, he was saying, I said, I, you know, I don't know whose pitch you were listening to, you know, but I talked about alcohol enough. I just didn't feel obligated to qualify it like you hear sometimes like, well, I know this is an AA meeting, but drugs are part of my story. And it's just like, you know, why even, why do you even have to do that? I could imagine like, uh, well, you know, I know this is an AA meeting, but uh, ice cream is part of my story, you know, or, or whatever, you know, and uh, you name it, sex is part of my story. There's four sex programs. Codependency is part of my story. Gambling's part of my story. We don't qualify for those things. You know, hemorrhoids are part of my story. So it's just ridiculous. And in a way, Alcoholics Anonymous, at least inadvertently, has sort of painted itself into a corner regarding these things. And the way they've done it is by they talk about singleness of purpose, but at the same time, and you know, a lot of this stuff was done and put together before the nature of addiction and alcoholism and other things like that were not fully understood or completely uh, uh, delineated. And in fact, there's an oblique reference in uh, one of these books uh, that we read about somebody who came in that had a problem that had even more stigma than AA alcoholism did. And there was a discussion at that time, well, should we let this guy in because they didn't approve or understand of what he was doing but he wanted help through the 12 steps and they said well who are we to say no you know if we can we can help another human being with this stuff then we should somehow that anecdote has been forgotten i don't know why so that came up there was also a reference made to me about tradition three they said yeah you know staying and staying in touch with tradition three a lot of people are uh, scared off by the traditions. I'm not. I wish there were more traditions meeting, and I wish more people would go to them. So I'm looking at Tradition 3, which is the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. That right there already, as far as I'm concerned, makes it clear whether you're a drug addict or not, if you want to stop drinking as well, then you qualify. Part of what I was going to say earlier about the being painted into the corner thing was this whole idea that, um, you know, you can't talk about drugs, whatever the reason. I don't know how you could pop. Well, there's stuff I did, and I can't. starts with a D. I mean, really? So the, the problem is this, is that there's some people I've talked to who got it into their heads that they can get stoned on the weekends, which I never even heard of for the first 15, that anybody would say that or think that in the first 15 years I was sober. But I finally met him. I had to move in order to meet him. But I finally meet people who actually believe that. Or they thought it'd be okay to drop acid, you know, or whatever it was, or do ecstasy. And I was just like, really? So they're saying, oh, yeah, it's an outside issue. And they say, it's only about alcohol. And I says, you got to be kidding me. Because I'm trying to imagine when I was still drinking and using... So it would go like this. It'd be like, oh, man, I'm glad I'm sober. You know, I, I would never have said that. I wouldn't have considered myself sober during, uh, during those days. So it just seems ludicrous to me. But at the same time, so, so here's the problem. The problem is they come in, oh, you can't talk about drugs. And then in the next breath, um, somebody comes in and announces, that they're doing pills and, and marijuana and um, ecstasy and everything else in the weekend. And uh, then the same people will say, well, then you're not sober. You know, nothing from the neck up and all this, uh, all this kind of thing. It's like, well, make up your mind. What is it? You know, and if I'm not sober 
and, and I'm supposed to stop doing those things, how am I not going to talk about that? So I just, I just think it's plain silly. And there's, uh, you know, there's another issue with that, and that is, is that I don't know if they didn't know this back then, or if they did and they didn't let me in on it. But the deal is, is that alcohol is a drug. I know that kind of sounds like a duh, you know, it's like, but alcohol is a drug. It's an addictive drug. And the idea that some drugs work a little bit differently than other drugs, okay, I get that. But the idea also that the recovery experience and the 12-step experience is somehow fundamentally different from one drug to another, I mean, and I I know there's other 12-step programs, and I've done them myself. I've walked into a CA meeting qualified only as a cocaine addict because that was part of part of my story that was part of what I that's part of who I was and uh, it's it, it's a different crowd of people you meet in there in fact I couldn't I chose not to go to CA anymore because uh, I was a good old-fashioned uh, you know powder snorter and when I went to CA it was like crack pipe time and it's just I just couldn't relate to it but that doesn't mean I couldn't have worked the steps or gotten comfortable in there or whatever. And I'm sure I'll drop in on a CA meeting from time to time. I've certainly gone to NA meetings. I don't have, just between you and me, and since I can get away with this anonymously, I really don't have a very good opinion of NA. Not because I think there's anything wrong with it, but a couple of NA meetings I went to, if you had 18 months, you're pretty much an old timer. <laughs> This is so unfair and, and so judgmental on my part, and I'm willing to own that. And like I said, since this is anonymous, uh, hopefully you don't know who I am and can't give me shit about it. But uh, so, yeah, I just think you meet a better class of people at AA. Just the people I had a chance to meet, my friend that brought me in, I'll mention a name, uh, Mary. Let's call her Mary. Anyway, she was a good old-fashioned alcoholic, but she did a bunch of other drugs. And she brought me into that, to what turned out to be my home group for the first 10 years of my sobriety and introduced me to a lot of good people, a lot of interesting people uh, that definitely had what I wanted. And um, so that was pretty cool. So I'm looking at Tradition 3, and one of the things it said here, so the guy that was critical of me, he goes, well, you know, it has to do with Tradition 3 and, you know, singleness of purpose, which is not what they say in here, and... uh, you know, the requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking, which still doesn't support the point. But then I'm looking at this paragraph. It's on page 140 in the 12 and 12. We were we were resolved to admit nobody in AA, but that hypothetical class of people we term pure alcoholics. That's in quotes. Except for their guzzling and the unfortunate results thereof, they could have no other complications. So beggars, tramps, asylum inmates, prisoners, queers, plain, uh, boy, that term has come full circle, hasn't it? Plain crackpots, fallen women, we're definitely out. Yes, sir, we carry, we cater only to pure and respectable alcoholics, and others would surely destroy us. Besides, if we took in those odd ones, what would we decent people say about us? What would decent people say about us? We built a fine mesh fence around AA. Maybe this sounds comical now. And it goes on from there. So I'm reading this and I'm thinking, what the hell is this guy thinking? I mean, basically right there, it pretty much says we had to drop all pretense of who it was 
we were going to let in and why on earth it makes any difference as to how they identify. That brings up another problem, and that is as, as long ago as 25 years, there's this trend, if you want to call it, of defining yourself as an alcoholic addict. And I thought it was pretty cool at first when I heard it, and I started saying that. And then what I put together, and uh, my sponsor actually said that, he goes, oh, you're, you're, uh, you're an extra special kind of alcoholic, you know. Oh, you have a real problem, you know, much more serious problem. It's like, no, it's, it, it's an ick, alcohol ick, a drug ick, workahol ick, it's an ick. So that's something I learned early on. I do not any longer def, uh, identify as an alcoholic addict. Maybe in a hundred years, Alcoholics Anonymous will change that, where you come in and say, I'm, I'm addicted to alcohol, or I'm an, I'm an alcohol addict, or I'm an addict. If you're an alcoholic, you're, you're a drug addict, really. So like I said, maybe in 50 or 100 years, Alcoholics Anonymous changes about as fast as you can turn a battleship. So when I go to an AA meeting, I identify as an alcoholic. And like I said earlier, I've got plenty of other problems. I could go down the list, and it would take 15 minutes. It's like, hi, my name is Cal, and I'm an alcoholic and a cocaine addict and uh, eligible for Narcotics Anonymous. I certainly have sexual obsessions. I overspend. I have a tendency towards gambling addiction. I do eat food ab abusively, so I'm a candidate for Food Addicts Anonymous. Well, uh, thank you for letting me share. Good night. And uh, so why put all those things in there, like I said earlier, and, and why don't you talk about your hemorrhoids, too, while you're at it? And it's just like, no. It's just, this is an AA meeting, so out of respect for the fact this is an AA meeting, I'm going to say I'm an alcoholic. First and foremost, primarily for the purposes of this meeting, I'm an alcoholic. So that's, that's why I do that. Oh, God. And then, uh, so what about psych meds? And this is the point where I'm definitely not supposed to be talking about this or pontificating on it in any way, shape, or form because I am not a doctor. I am not a... I'm not a psychiatrist. So having said that, and basically that's the answer to everything I'm about to say, and that is I'm not a psychiatrist. You can meet a lot of amateur psychologists, psychiatrists, amateur lawyers, amateur uh, mechanics, what have you, in AA. There's no a lack of them. But if I was going to take advice from a layperson, it definitely wouldn't be from a crazy alcoholic. No, thank you. But there are people that will tell you, like, if you're on psych meds or sedatives or sleep aids or something like that, that you're not really sober. And that is so not any of their business. I don't even know how to fully express that. It's irresponsible, and it's just plain dumb why you would present, presume to say anything like that. And I've, and I've watched the consequences of that. There was someone in a meeting I used to go to that was on psych meds, and he was doing okay, and somebody talked him out of it. He flipped out and ultimately lost everything, including his sobriety in other ways. People have, in the program, have no, in any program, have no business making that kind of decision or discussion. That is for a professional, and I have to remind myself of that, too. I have people that call me their sponsor. And someone once said, there's a lot of people who call me their sponsor. They don't call me. But I continually remind them so I can remind myself I am not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. I can share my experience. The main thing I'm an expert at, and I mean an expert,
is how I worked the 12 steps. So if you want what I have, then if you do what I do, you might get what I got. Hmm. We went far afield on that one. But no, that's, that's really, obviously you can see that I'm kind of, I get kind of pissed off about it when people say those things. It's just like, you know, and uh, there's a lady in uh, another group that I was part of after I left my hometown, my original home group. And she has been sober for over 30 years. And she takes psych meds, but these are not because maybe she's, uh, you know, unmotivated or depressed or something like that. I mean, if her meds ever go wrong or she ever gets off them, we're talking son of Sam stuff. You know, I mean, dogs talking to her or demons and shit like that. But when she's on her meds, she's fine for the most part. A little eccentric, let's say. Again, you don't know this person, so I feel perfectly comfortable uh, judging her. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. But she's been over. She's been sober over 30 years, and knows the program as well, if not better, than anybody I know. So that obviously has nothing to do with it. The other thing about drugs, which you might hear from time to time, I'm sucking on a lozenge right now, in case you're wondering what the other sound effects are, is the fact that Bill W. dropped acid. And there's some people that either don't believe it or they find it amusing. There's, uh, you know, other people who want to know about it. There's other people who discount the entire program because of that inference. But um, I believe it's towards the back of Pass It On. But keep in mind, you know, we're pushing, we're coming up pretty close on, uh, you know, it's 85 years already since the co-founders got together. So who knows what they thought. Bill was always looking for some cure for his depression, which he found, oddly enough, through spirituality. But we'll get to that in a minute. So as the story goes, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Bill did that because he was actually one, I don't know if it was Dr. Tebow or whoever it was that said Bill, whoever it was, uh, some psychiatrist or whatever, thought that Bill was an interesting character for a variety of reasons, but a large part of it was because he would try anything, do anything to make himself a better person or to solve a problem or whatever it took. He didn't just sit around, get to a certain level, and stay there. He did have bouts of depression from time to time. In fact, his worst one was sometime in the 50s before he wrote the uh, 12 and 12. And he was so depressed that there was a rumor going around that he was drinking again. I mean, it was everything he could do to drag himself out of bed and and sit at the kitchen table in his pajamas, holding his head in his hands, trying to keep from falling into his cornflakes. That's what he did for a long time until he snapped out of it. So he'd been in, he'd been through one. By the way, I don't know if, if any of that is true. But what I do know is that he did have bouts of depression, and he was always looking for ways to deal with it. Everything from uh, massive doses of vitamin B12 to Ouija boards to whatever. And one of the things that he tried was LSD, which was highly experimental. Nobody thought of it as a party drug at the time. Uh, there was, it had not been classified as a class three drug, which meant it had absolutely no value other than detrimentally or illegally or whatever you want to call it. It hadn't been classified that as yet. So he did it on his own, but as part of a controlled environment, I think the father, what's his face, was it Dowling? Anyway, he, one of those guys was there keeping an eye on him. I wonder if the good father dropped acid, too. That's kind of interesting. But he experimented with it, and apparently he didn't get anywhere with it, so we shit-canned it. So if you want to talk drugs, well, 
there you go. I'm kind of jumping around here, I get it. but So here's another deal. You get cancer, and then you find out if you want your appetite back, would you get high? Would you get stoned? Now, you can take the THC, but I've heard that really the best delivery system is through smoking a joint. So would you do it? Again, since you don't know my real name, I'll admit this. I, I think I probably would. I really do. And the only thing I can come up with to justify that actually has to do with opiates, opioids. And I was prescribed opioids when I had, uh, when I had a surgery not too long ago. And uh, I needed them. <laughs> In fact, I did uh, Dilaudid before they pushed me into um, whatever the hell it was, oxycodone. And I talked to other people in the program. I said, look, you're prescribed painkillers. And, uh, and I talked to my doctor about it. I said, look, I need to have something that's non-euphoric. He basically said, there's no such thing. And then I found out about tramadol, which one of the things, the way it works on me is that it's non-euphoric. But guess what? It's the worst of both worlds. It's non-euphoric and it's addictive if you do enough of it. But luckily, I was warned about opioids because I'd watched some uh, after-school specials about it. And I heard about the epidemic and how many people were dying from it. But you know, when I was in the hospital, not one, not one person in there, not the admitting nurse, not the prep nurses or whatever they are, not my surgeon, not any of his people or the, the wound care nurse or anybody else, not one of those people said anything about the addictiveness of opioids. The only reason I knew about it is because I knew about it. Now I think things are different, and it's even a little harder to get them. I'm glad that wasn't the case when, when I needed them. But I tell you what, and thank God for my sponsor, because he told me about being on painkillers for a surgery he went through. And he was an old pill head from way back. Uh, and that's why at first I thought it wouldn't apply to me. But he, he said it woke something up in him that had been dormant for 30 years. And he had to get that shit out of there. I mean, can you think about it? I mean, somebody who's sponsoring people and, and sober for three decades and has still gotten to the point where like, take these out of here, lock them somewhere, don't give them to me unless, you know, and guess what? The same thing happened to me. I got to a point where... And, and, and here's how I found out that it works. You're taking the opioids for the pain, and it's, it's doing its job. And the pain is balancing out the euphoria. You know, that's right there. You're not really thinking of it. I'm not, is what I meant. But then there's this little period of time where your pain is pretty much gone, but you do an opioid or two, and you start to realize, wow, I feel pretty good. I mean, there's a certain high that comes from not being in constant pain, but that's another thing. And then if you keep doing it, you'll hear a little voice in your head that says, hey, wait a minute, I, I feel pretty good. You know, you're not in pain. You're feeling uh, pleasant about life in general and you do your laundry or whatever. And it's like, you know, maybe I should take one, of, just a half of one of these a day. And then when I got to that point, I realized, wait a minute. And I'd heard a couple of stories about this. And then, I, and then as I like to tell it, uh, it's like, well, only do it for pain. So I've got the oxycodone in my nightstand. And um, I found myself sort of staring at the nightstand and thinking, hmm, well, I think I've got a little pain in my big toe. Maybe I should take some, you know, it, it just basically trying to, you know, it's just like, I've got a headache. I'm sure it'll work better than aspirin. And it's just, I was like looking for a reason. <laughs> 
looking for a pain so I could take the um, oxycodone. And that's the moment where I realized I could be potentially fucked here. So I turned them over to my uh, girlfriend at the time, one of my uh, many exes. Uh, the country is uh, littered with them. But uh, she, uh, I turned them over to her, and I knew she had a locking file cabinet. I said, lock these up and keep track of every time I ask for one. I'm going to come and ask for a pill every four hours and whenever I need it. And just by her being part of the process sort of made me accountable in a way that I would not have been before. And the funny part about it is that my girlfriend was completely mystified by it. She goes like, okay, if you want me to do that, I guess so. You know, She didn't get it at all. She didn't get it at all. And she'd known me for years. I presume she knows something about addiction. But she agreed to do it, and it was very helpful. When I didn't have it in the drawer right next to me, and I knew it was locked up, and I knew if I started asking for two every 15 minutes that someone else would notice, it made it a lot easier for me. But it was scary as hell. It was really very, very scary. Anyway, I think that's all I have to say about drugs. Oh, I promised I wouldn't use that voice. I think, it's, I think that's all I have to say about drugs. I guess I can't fault a group that says anything about you can't talk about drugs here. Uh, luckily, we have the luxury of going to any one of a thousand meetings and, or a hundred meetings in any given town. And I don't know. Like I said, I don't know what's going to happen over time. I could imagine in 50 or 75 years that there may be some sort of uh, certainly smoking at some point. You know, if if nicotine's not an addiction, I don't know what is. I mean, there's a uh, there's a nicotine anonymous, as a matter of fact, and I think there might be some day where we'll look back and it's just say, you know, people used to smoke at AA. They used to do this addictive drug, one of the most addictive drugs in the world, that kills more people than every other drug combined, and say, oh, well, you know, it's an outside issue. It's just like, are you insane? The idea that we ever did that. But right now, it's, you know, in, in up until um, the 80s, it was almost a tradition to, to walk into an AA group and there'd be like London fog manifestation of cigarette smoke all through there and gallons of coffee. And that's another thing. Who knows? I mean, there's a caffeine anonymous and there might be a time when that's looked down upon. Maybe even the fact that some of us eat seven pounds of sugar a week. Is that a drug? Might be. But uh, cigarettes especially. That one, I know people who were uh, heroin addicts and addicted to crystal meth that say they can't stop smoking. But the same people who've said that to me, I've asked them, at least one person, point blank, have you ever asked God to remove the obsession? And this was funny because the guy I was talking to, I was six years sober. He was like 28 or 30. And he said, yeah, if I could just give these things up. And I asked him, have you asked God to remove the obsession? And he just said, you know what? Uh, I bet if I did, he would. So that ends up being kind of a step six thing, I guess, is that if you're not willing to give up, if you look at it that way as a character defect or what have you, whatever you want to, if you're not willing to give it up, on a really fundamental level, God's not going to take it away from you. You have to be willing to give it up. And if you're not, you get to pray for the willingness. But I am fascinated. Now, keep in mind, nicotine was never my thing. I watched my father smoke himself to death to the point where he had to have a lung removed. And then he kept smoking. And one night he announced very proudly that he was smoking half as much. And I was like, Dad, you've, you've got half as many lungs, of course, you know, and uh, that was probably mean. 
But, you know, he went to his grave and not really believing that the cigarettes had anything to do with it. And that viewpoint was held by my mother. You know, it survived him by uh, 10 or 20 years. Well, you know, your father never believed that the cigarette, you know, well, who cares what he believed? There's uh, quite a lot of, uh, there's a smoking gun uh, behind that. That's pretty much regarded. You know, that they knew ever since the 30s that cigarettes were addictive and that they probably caused cancer. And then not until the 60s did they finally push through the warnings and everything else, which didn't do a damn thing. But but yeah, I could see that. But it just really astounds me that there's people who were shooting heroin and they just choose not to not to smoke. And then they kill themselves. And they end up, um, I think, uh, wasn't it Bill? No, Bob, that ended up dying of emphysema. They were both smokers. So someday we'll we'll look at that and decide maybe maybe that's a good thing to do. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do about sugar. I'm the guy that uh, in early sobriety I used to get the full fat Haagen-Dazs melted in the microwave and drink it straight out of the carton. You know, just pour it right down my throat. So that's addictive on some level. But we're going into some uh, pretty wacky territory here, and I don't know where else to go. So I'm thinking that'll pretty much wrap it up. In the meantime. This was an experiment. I don't know if it worked or not or if anybody gives a good damn. Uh, If you'd like to make a comment about it, you'll hear this again at the uh, outro that we have with uh, another lovely voice. And that is is if you want to make any comments, suggestions, uh, who knows, even if you want to co-host or you have an idea want to be a guest or you want to suggest anyone as a guest, you can go to our Facebook page, which is Squirrel Cage AA. And we stuck the AA in the end because there was another squirrel cage on there that has nothing to do with uh, recovery, addiction, 12 steps. And if you go to that page, you can DM direct messages or uh, just write a comment in there. Like I said, you can make suggestions or, or what have you. And then uh, also we're on Twitter, if you'd like that better. And our handle there is at SquirrelKJA. So, uh, and make sure you spell squirrel right. So, yeah, if you... Uh, have any suggestions, send them along. I think that's that's all I got. So uh, stay sober if you want to. And uh, remember, our book is meant to be suggestive only. And for those people who use it like a textbook and who say, well, the reason that they said that is because they didn't want to tell alcoholics that they had to do it one way. So they say that it's suggestive, but they really mean you have to do it. You know, it's like it's uh, the the gag is like, well... It's suggested that you wear a parachute when you jump out of a plane, which is very cute. But I have another theory, and that is maybe they meant it. So as far as I'm concerned, the book and the 12 and 12 are meant to be suggestive only. Uh, If you want what someone else has, uh, you do what they do, and you might get what they got. Anyway, that's enough out of me, and I will talk to you later. You have safely exited the Squirrel Cage, hosted by Crispy and Cal C, presenting thought-provoking recovery conversations which, if we've done our jobs, will anger someone somewhere. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion for topics or guests, please just keep them to yourself. Oh, just kidding. You can post them on Facebook at at SquirrelKJA, where you can find more details about today's podcast. Be sure to like our page so that you will be notified when our next podcast drops, which is something we do at completely unpredictable intervals. You can also join us on Twitter. Search for at SquirrelKJA. Our delightful music is provided for free by Kevin McLeod on Incompetech.com 
with further details on our Facebook page. Remember, the great obsession for every sober alcoholic is a desire to control and enjoy their thinking. So give that up like we did, and we'll have new stuff for you soon. Bye-bye.